Josh's log. Stardate 497-2465.2. I am here to defend the honor of my father, who you know and I know did absolutely nothing wrong at the massacre, I mean, at the tragedy at the end of log. <laughs> Hi, everybody. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to do that until right before we started. Don't pull back the curtain. <laughs> that was fun. So here we are. Re-engage. Welcome to our podcast for Gen X morons and nerds in relatively uh, equal uh, standing with one another and in their own heads. I, a newly married man... Got to spend that day with many of my close friends and unfortunately missing Mr. Tito. I know we talked about it last week, so but sad. I'm still ridiculously happy and even more so ridiculously happy to host this episode about the sins of the father. What a fantastic, fantastic episode in the history of the Star Trek universe. I'm here joined by my three fellow Cultural Bridge officers. Let's see how everybody's doing. What's up, Greg Tito? Hey, Eric. Very excited to delve into Klingon culture. We get to see the capital, the planet for the first time. Very cool stuff. Uh, this is such a fun episode. Agreed. Wholeheartedly agreed. Jimmy G, what's up? I am doing great, thank you. I hope you're well. Anytime fancy forks come out, <laughs> you know it's going to be a good episode. That's true. <laughs> Indeed, and cutlery of all kinds, in fact. <laughs> Kate Yeager, what is up? I'm just so excited that Jimmy was excited about the cutlery because this time we got to see knives. Right? And I so excited that there they were knives. They completed the set, finally. <laughs> and everything is as it should be. I am Eric Curry. Yeah, you are. Yes. Well, let's jump in. Greg, what's going on at this point in the world? There is not super ton happening during this particular week, but I'll go through what is. March 20th, the day after this happened, the LA Lakers retired Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's number 33. He was a stalwart on the 80s Lakers teams as well as a storied career. And I just loved seeing him pop up in this pop culture from time to time. Amazing airplane scenes we always remember. But of course, he was also on a Big Bang Theory recently playing Dungeons and Dragons. And so I just love his whole cultural impact. And on last season of Dave, too. Oh, yeah. And we got to talk about the Kung Fu, do we not? Oh, of course. Right. He was in Kung Fu, too. My goodness, the man the man is a storied and accomplished journalist, uh, as well as opinion writer. He's incredible. Long may he live. Absolutely. Also on March 20th, though, less good news. Gloria Estefan was in an accident, fractured her spine when a truck hit her tour bus near Scranton, Pennsylvania. Yet another reason to dislike <laughs> the area around Scranton, Pennsylvania. Gloria Estefan and this Miami Sound Machine, they were at the height of their popularity when this happened, and it took a long time for her to recover from a spinal injury, as you can imagine. And the Steamtown Mall never recovered. <laughs> exactly. Going back to what's going on in the USSR, a new constitution was enacted, and Mikhail Gorbachev was elected as the first executive president of the Soviet Union, which was a large doing, leading, of course, to the end of the Soviet Union, which we will get to in a few years. Even though there was this step forward in having a elected 
president. The Soviet Union also announced this week that the Declaration of Independence from Lithuania, one of the Baltic states, was invalid, and which, of course, led to more conflict in those states and uh, the destabilization of that area. Maybe there were some things happening during this time. <laughs> <laughs> Let me finish! Right, Jimmy? <laughs> Speaking of Jimmy G, what was happening behind the scenes of this episode? A couple of things. As Greg mentioned uh, in the opener, this is our very first look at the Klingon homeworld ever. And just for some context, like this is 30 years 20-ish? Yeah, 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 yeah. So 20-ish years of Star Trek already, like from the, the 60s up until now, Klingons were the bad guys and we had never seen their homeworld. So this was a pretty epic moment and it won a couple of awards, uh, Emmys, for the production designer, Richard James, and the set decorator, Jim Mies, each taking a statue for their work on this episode. Later in the episode, when they're, they're sleuthing out how they can get Worf out of this predicament, um, you may have noticed in the, the log of the Intrepid, the captain of the Intrepid was one Drew Dagan, who is actually the person who uh, wrote the script, or the, the spec script for this particular episode. And uh, I'm sure you'll talk about Tony, Todd, and oh, hell yeah. the other ones a little bit. He This was his fourth audition. So he auditioned for TNG four times before he actually got a role, which oh. was this one. Uh, and then there's two pretty big time uh, stuntmen in this. They play the assassins for Duras. It's BJ Davis and Chris Doyle. Uh, BJ was uh, um, a member of the Academy of Arts and Sciences. He actually founded the arm of the Academy specifically for stuntmen and made inroads uh, for them to be recognized as stuntmen to get their names up and to uh, get better protection. Uh, and his, he made a documentary about his wife who actually was a whistleblower mm. and about how whistleblowers are treated uh, by the companies and by Washington. And it was pretty controversial. Oh, fuck yeah, legend. He's done, you know, like he was a stuntman for Tom Hanks, Jack Nicholson, Tommy Lee Jones, Michael Caine, Art Carney. <laughs> I mean, fuck come yeah. on. Uh, and Chris <laughs> Doyle, I mean, from 1979 until present, he's been around. Um, doing stunts uh, in Last Man Standing, Scream 2, Insurrection, so tying to Star Trek, and in the last several years as a stunt coordinator. And that's what uh, Larry had to say. Legend, man. I tell you, they, they still don't have an Oscar for a stunt person. They have visual effects. They have that kind of right. shit. Still don't have an Oscar for stunt performers, and that's ridiculous. It is. It is. Even though Tom Cruise would win every time because it's so stupid. It's always him. <laughs> but BJ still holds two Guinness Book of World Records. One for the longest free fall drop from a helicopter. Whoa. And the other one, which is even more insane, for the longest trip suspended by his neck from oh, a helicopter. Oh, What? 20-minute helicopter ride suspended by his no. neck from Universal Studios to the Santa Monica Pier. If it's going to be a stuntman, like, that makes sense to me. That's some Fall Guy Cooper shit. Wow. That's awesome. Uh, I, you know, the toxic masculinity aside, that's <laughs> That's true. Is that what you got, Jimmy? That's a that's, great... That's what I got. I want to hear what the songs were. Me too. So, Kate, 
That's me. Now tell me ah, close. what was going on in pop culture at this point. You're you're close, uh, but but that was earlier. <laughs> we are we are once again on this date listening to uh, Escapade by Janet Jackson and just loving it. We're continuing to watch The Hunt for Red October, but if that didn't uh, fit our fancy, maybe we were watching House Party because that came out a couple weeks before this episode. Hell yes! Right. Oh. Oh, yes. The 10th Golden Raspberry Awards went out. And guess what won the uh, top award for the Golden Raspberry? What do you think, Mr. Curry? Star Trek V. You are correct. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are absolutely correct. On television, Dweezil and Moon Unit Zappa appeared in a 13-episode series called Normal Life, which tracked the lives of the uh, uh, fictional lives of some... Uh, children of a rock star. So I want to find this so bad. I had a crush on Dweezil Zappa, true story, because who didn't? Everyone. On Broadway, Grapes of Wrath opened at the court for 188 performances, and a show called Lettuce and Lovage Mm. opened at the Barrymore for 284 performances, starring a Dean... 284, starring Dame Maggie Smith. Wow. Apparently... Everyone loved it until uh, Smith went away. And then everyone was like, we don't understand this play. It's stupid and too British. Fair. (laughs) Star power. And that's what was happening. Well, that's fantastic. I think we should move forward into the episode, Sins of the Father, which is on my uh, notes as Sons of the Father, which uh, would be factually correct. (laughs) (laughs) If a little less poetic, uh, a bad play on a a good title. Our cold open starts with a, I thought, kind of chipper Picard's log. He's like, well, here we are, meeting (laughs) meeting the Klingons, and then moves immediately into a very stern walk and talk with number one. Do not disrespect these Klingons. And uh, we get the in- the introduction of who are we meeting today, Jimmy? Uh, Kern? Is that his Commander name? Kern. Yeah. That's right. We're finishing off that uh, cultural exchange program that Riker went and served on their ship. They're getting a Riker to come serve on this ship. And his name is Commander Kern. They walk into the transporter room and suddenly we are gifted with the royal presence of Mr. Tony Todd. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on Tony Todd right off the bat, anybody? I love how his body type is so different from most Klingons that we've seen before, right? He's tall, he's lanky, he yeah. has a completely different presence from the first appearance. And then, of course, he just exudes like, I am unpleasant from the get-go, which, you know, which tracks with most Klingons, but it's such a, it's such a fun contrast to the kind of mus- more muscular, beefy Klingons that we've seen in the past. And part of it is that that lovely physical presence that Greg's talking about. He's he's lanky but powerful. Yeah. He's he's a sword instead of a cudgel as as he moves. And and I think it's a really brilliant choice what he's chosen to do with his physicality, because it's not what Worf does, who's all chest. It's not what the fat Klingons do, which is super common. And apparently in this episode, we'll get to super shamey motherfuckers. Right. <laughs> you know, his his background is in classical theater. I mean, he he studied uh, first where, Greg? 
the University of Connecticut. Did he really? I did not know that. Yeah. And then uh, he grew up in Hartford and then the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center. In New London. Very close to where I grew up. Very cool. And then he studied there and then followed that up with Trinity Rep in Rhode Island. He's been on Broadway several times. Uh, he played August Wilson's King Headley II. He was in Aida on Broadway. Uh uh, well, in, in the Star Trek universe and in genre stuff in particular, he is absolute royalty. He played adult Jake Sisko at one point in Deep Space Nine, which is the one I had forgotten. And I'm, I'm excited to get back and rewatch that. Yeah. Uh, and he's, he was in Voyager. He's done all that kind of stuff. I, Candyman, Candyman, Candyman is where you start. Ah, don't. My, uh, no, it's okay. <laughs> Bees. <laughs> well, that's the thing. He was stung 23 times uh, on the set of Candyman and had a contract statement that uh, paid him $1,000 for every time he was stung. So he made a cool 23 grand. Not enough. <laughs> no. But, uh, Agents, but negotiate that funny. number higher. No it should shit. at least well, be 100000 that's, that's 1987 <laughs> money. Uh, oh, dude okay. has over 250 credits on IMDb, including an upcoming Loch Ness Monster movie, 17 titles in total upcoming this year or next. Wow. He's still busy. He's the voice of Venom and Darkseid. He's uh, fallen in the Transformers movies. He's senators, mayors, generals, teachers, doctors. He's a little bit of a genre shibboleth. Just his presence in an indie horror or sci-fi brings a gravitas and relevance to the project. To unabashed fans of genre movies and TV, this dude is so important. Uh, he played the bad guy Hunter Solomon on The Flash, iconic uh, uh, DC character. Alternates low budget with high budget easily. Room 104, big soaps like The Young and the Restless, Hawaii Five O, CIA director on Chuck. 24, without a trace, Boston Legal. He played Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in a kind of underrated movie from about 15 years ago. He recurred in the Hatchet and Final Destination series, Charmed, Andromeda, Smallville, Angel Voyager, 90210, Wishmaster. And we are just now back to 2000. The Rock... The fucking Crow, Cop Rock reference, all in caps, Ooh. in that very good remake of The Night of the Living Dead. I, I encourage you to go rewatch it. He's fantastic in it. Lean on Me, Bird, Colors, Platoon was his big break. Mm. One of my all-time favorites, and I, I told you guys the story last week that I, I spent like 25 minutes randomly in an ATM line with him talking about the Lakers. He just was so personal and, and relaxed there too. We'll get more to him uh, as we continue this talk. Kate, what do you think of Kern right off the bat? I love how this episode really uses light and shadow. And when we first see him, he is sort of turned away from us and, and in shadow. As you're saying, his physicality is so different uh, from what we're used to that it's it's very effective. Like, he doesn't have to say anything in those first moments. And you're like, oh, shit, this is going to be rough. <laughs> yeah. And and that physicality, especially now that we've seen his career, like it's so different from the stillness of Candyman. And it's so different from the authority he brings when he plays a general or a, uh, you know, doctor, a CIA officer. Like every single character that he does has a different way of carrying themselves. And it's a way that fits in his enormous body. Like he's 6'5", and nobody working in Hollywood is 6'5". It's, it's incredible. It's like him and Tim Robbins. Hmm. So watching him translate a Klingon attitude into a completely different body, like, like, they, like you, I think, said, Greg, uh, than anybody we've ever seen play a Klingon before, and yet it was so clearly a Klingon. Yeah. 
It's like, of course, that's how a Klingon who looks like that would move if they're trying to maintain a position of authority. Oh, he's powerful. Iconic character. Yeah. Three episodes is all he did as Kern. So powerful looking. He did, um, and I don't know if they did more close-ups on him than other Klingons. It was the first time I noticed that only the top teeth of the Klingons are nasty. The bottom teeth were all pearly white and look like Hollywood smile. So it's just that top row that the Klingons have a hard time cleaning up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very nutty professor when you when you start to really break it down, isn't it? Kern comes right in, takes- No nonsense. No nonsense at all. Goes up, introduces himself, and let's get to it. Showing in my station right away. I don't yeah. care where I'm living. I don't care my quarters. I want to start commanding. Doesn't, tellingly doesn't bring any bag of any sort at all. <laughs> You didn't even think about that, but yeah, yeah right. this is my this is my stuff. I'm wearing it. I'm sure I've got a lot of shit in here that you don't know I have. Ask me about it. Why don't you? I just want to note I missed O'Brien from this scene. I don't know why. I didn't even notice the last couple of episodes that we've had transporter. They've been randos, and I'm like, oh man, I loved that during season two. Like they just seem to always put O'Brien in these in these scenes for one or two lines, and uh, you know, he we don't get his reaction here. He might be shooting. It, it could be. Yeah, it, it probably is just scheduling things or whatever. I, I want it to be that. Yeah, Cannon. Cannon. So when he gets to the bridge, we have a lovely scene where he gives a, a very broad opening. Uh, remark uh, series and then pauses to stand directly next to Worf for just a second so the camera sees them next to each other and then continues down towards Wesley. I Okay, so he catches, <laughs> he catches Wesley and Data gossiping, I guess? <laughs> like, that was weird. I want to know what this conversation is <laughs> because you're got, you're, the two gossips are not them. <laughs> no <laughs> I just I I don't I don't I love Wesley's, it Wesley's asking the ethics because he's got the ethics book right there I really have to pee am I going to get in trouble if I just stand up and walk out <laughs> should I interrupt him and say "Do I, can I pee can it and I think that's what they're talking about Maybe. so it yeah. gets even higher stakes when yeah. he addresses Wesley here in a second Yep, they I had like already that. dipped too far into central casting for the upcoming uh, trial scenes on Kronos, so they, they just couldn't bring anybody else in. And I think uh, <laughs> you're right on the money there with what was being discussed. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right. So at that point, uh, he gives Wesley his order, right? Yeah. And uh, what does he say to make it happen? Execute. <laughs> Holy shit, Wesley it's is not happy so about good. it. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. He says, like, okay, I'll engage it. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, we don't say that here. <laughs> <laughs> it is wonderful. One note there. I just love that Kern's looking at a chair. And he goes, I guess I have to sit down. These, these morons sit down on the bridge. <laughs> and he does this weird, awkward, like, I'm still trying to have as much authority as possible while bending my body in this weird way. And he hates that it, there's a cushion on it. Yeah. Oh, he hates it. Oh, he's angry uh, about it. <laughs> this comfort yeah. pisses me off. It's true. It's absolutely true. Good physicality, though. So coming back in, Wesley's being a little baby and talking <laughs> <laughs> Riker's just dispensing the advice. What's going on, Kate? I love that 
Riker is literally eating it up. Like he is there for this. Like the moment that Jordy is there oh, too, yeah. he's like, "Uh huh." And then what? <laughs> like, it's just shameless. And I love that Wesley's just like, "I just don't think he likes me." He's <laughs> like, "You know, he doesn't." At all. Riker reminds me of the guy who went to study abroad or something like that. And then is like, I'm going to tell you what it's like when we're eating Japanese at the Japanese restaurant here. It's like, this is what this culture is like. I know because I spent two weeks there and I know everything about it. Oh, such a pompous You're ass. You're making fun of me, aren't you? You're making fun of me. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Just incredible. So yes, Kern went into engineering and he did a surprise inspection during a maintenance cycle. Riker gets it. Like you're saying, he gets it. Just uh, you're going to have to deal with it a little bit differently. And maybe appreciate me a little bit more. (laughs) (laughs) I got them on my side. You can do the same thing. And then we go right back into the uh, bridge. Well, they say into the transition, which is a great transition. He's making life difficult for everyone except the one person who could handle it. Which is just such a great like shift to that treacle that we're about to see and it's so good like i just think most actors and i don't clearly i think that any any role can be played brilliantly by multiple actors but like most actors would have approached this level of smiling and poking and gone way too far and he knows that he absolutely doesn't have to Mm -hmm. he doesn't have to do it loud and he can basically just act like he's really being nice to Worf and it'll read like he's not. And it's delightful. Yeah. Michael Dorn's reaction is perfect slow burn too. Like it's it's all mm-hmm. top to bottom in this episode is absolutely my favorite of any episode we'd have. And that's saying a lot because Date is barely in it. Wow, yeah. And I love that it's little brother energy here. Like it's just definitely being just like, I'm annoying you and I know I'm annoying you, but you can't say anything because I'm not touching you. <laughs> Do you know why I didn't pick up on that? Why? Because you're a little brother. A little brother. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but see, I recognize little brother for little brother. I was like, okay, yeah, I know. What <laughs> I know what you're doing. I like it. So we move on to the turbo lift. He's got to go downstairs, and Riker will. Right, right, let's just go with him. Uh, what What happens here, Kate? Does Riker have just like a friendly suggestion? She just tries to steer him towards a gentler hand. I've got some notes. <laughs> you know, I just some, <laughs> I just have, you know, would you take some advice? Kern is not having it. And as Riker says, you know, like, this is not a Klingon ship. He's like, yeah, no, dude, I know. Because you'd be dead. <laughs> yeah. So good. And, like, it's a fair response because he doesn't just, like, say, this is not a Klingon ship, sir. He says, this is not a Klingon ship, sir, in an open hallway suddenly. Right. And- in a small turbo lift where if you scream at him, you know you're going to get some fucking response. You wait till he <laughs> two steps into the hallway and then you yell at him. I think there's no way that's not on purpose. Like, I don't, maybe it isn't on purpose, but that is the way it reads to me and it's incredible. For all of Riker's, like, I know how to deal with Klingons, he did not handle that the way no. he should have. And he was doing the human thing of being like, let me give you a couple of pointers. And maybe you could change it up a little bit. If he if he has really absorbed everything he learned on the Klingon ship, he should have just fucking decked uh, Kern in the turbo lift. Yeah, alone. Uh, fascinating, just fascinating. Like, all right, so we go to dinner. <laughs> 
that is in the conference room. I just want to, like, clear that up. Like, it is most definitely the observation. But they call it the captain's mess. The captain's mess, but they just are like, oh, oh, no, we double booked the room. Right. <laughs> the the mothers are supposed to have their conference uh, during this. Oh crap! Dinner starts right off with him inspecting the smell of whatever that thing is in the middle. It's odd that they have a like a bird being like cut into, and then they go so far as to say like, "But this was replicated." And then you're like, well, why can't you just rec- replicate it sliced already right. then? Like, what's with this <laughs> weird ceremony so that we can see Picard cutting the knife thing? It feels like... Blocking. It was tra- blocking. <laughs> it was blocking. Stage business. It's yeah. ceremony. Do something stupid, with my hands. humans. Kern yeah. has a great Worf-esque line when he sees the turkey. <laughs> it's like, yes. how long has this been dead? It looks like it's been in the sun for... <laughs> it reminded me of that joke from the Thor uh, shorts where he's like roasting meat in the sun. He's like, oh, this is going to take another three weeks in the sun. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's how they cook stuff. It's it's tough with the Klingons because the fish out of water story right. uh, with them being darker skinned uh, is a thousand percent imperialist and racist and, and all of that. So, I mean, I find myself looking for excuses like current is deliberately making himself seem more ignorant, which an actor like Tony Todd would certainly find a relatively easy thing to figure out on his own. So it wouldn't surprise me if that is, in fact, what he was doing to make it palatable to play. Well, I I think they make a a bad choice with caviar here because caviar is gross. Sorry, I don't... Many of you might like it. I don't care. Oh, well, uh, someone's tried caviar. Hmm. <laughs> I, 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 I don't... Yeah, maybe I... I but the whole... I, like the, Klingon food is gross. It, like, they try to push that whole thing. And so the whole fact that they're trying to be like, oh, no, that's the eggs of a, of a, of a, of a fish and blah, blah, blah. And then they try to be like, oh, no, 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 don't, don't tell him that. Like, it feels yeah. like this is the one thing that he would like because it yeah. is something that's more similar to that. So like, I just think that was a bad choice in general. Like they should have done something like peanut butter or something like that's a little bit more like stale. That is so un (laughs) sci-fi. Everybody knows that peanut butter is very earthy. Something that's more commonplace in our culture that would be weird to Klingons. Well, I mean, it it comes off as a classist joke, which is racist. Yes, exactly. Like it, because it is. The undertones and motivations of this are racist. Uh, probably not consciously, but maybe consciously even. Worth talking about as we go forward with the darker toned people in the episode being the savages and the and the liars and the slum <laughs> dwellers complete with fire in the trash cans. I do love that he that, yeah. that Tony Todd has that business of t- taking the caviar and then wiping it on uh-huh. the turkey. Yeah. It's it, that made more sense than anything. Like he's like, oh yeah, of course. It's yeah. almost like a sauce, so you put it on the meat. That makes sense. Yeah, and he's got an amazing role to play, and and such amazing comic instincts all the way through. He's brilliant, and I laugh out loud at just about everything he does in this, even the violent stuff. He's just incredible. Yeah. But I thought that was worth talking about. To your point, the end of this scene going into the next scene is comparing the two of them. The food seems to agree with Worf. You know, like, right. well, it's good enough, right. you know, and like what what right. sort of undercurrent Which is that? Which is a dick thing to say. It is a total dick thing to like, say. Like, I would never put a friend or a colleague of mine in a position like that. Like, you are, 
you are absolutely consciously butting two people against one another by comparing one to the other. Like, and it was Jordy, right? It was Jordy. Yes. Wasn't it? So that's all three black actors in the room. So that's again, it it's not a coincidence in moments like this, unfortunately. Well, and yeah, and I, I'm not saying it wasn't racist. Like, I don't want to yeah. speak yeah, yeah. on that one. It came across to me as Jordy was trying to get back for the the hell he went through with the surprise inspection. You know, sure. like he was trying to dig at him in some way that wouldn't get him killed. Sure. <laughs> but it'd make more sense coming from Wesley, who's a child. Yeah. Oh, sure. It's an interesting thing. Or Dana, who might literally be looking for the logic of it while everyone else is saying that it's cultural or even race-based. <laughs> Data would be like, well, if it is, why, you know, and then we could go into that. But that's not what we were doing. <laughs> so, uh, But it is a great transition again, Kate, into like, all right, how are we going to get to this next dramatic moment between these two? Well, because his response to that is, uh, you know, it seems to agree with Worf. Yes, it does. End of scene. Boom. Next scene is Worf at his door. Yeah. In terms of setting up what's going to happen next, it's a really interesting one-two punch. To your point about how these interactions are, like these would be called microaggressions towards Worf here that he finally <laughs> has enough to be able to to confront Kern with. In the guest room. Yes, which is all about comfort. And wants to know if he can please, sir ask you a question that may not fall within the boundaries of protocol. And this whole little trade back and forth before he gives him that permission is just delightful. So good. Those two actors together. That physicality of, of Kern, he doesn't seem to stand up and he's, I am, you see my lanky body and see how unthreatened he is by Worf in the room. Mm -hmm. It's so great. And it's like, I have the power here. He embodies that that cliche of relaxing like a panther yes uh, we see that it is a conscious choice to show wharf that if you came at me right now i could be ready for you by the time you got to me that's fun i loved the dialogue there like i love what the actors did in the way it was written because wharf says may i ask a question of a personal nature and that's when kern sits down and says very quietly and just almost offhandedly, and this can't fit within the boundaries of protocol. That is a great way of reinforcing how devoted these this race is to ritual and protocol and hierarchy without the growling or the yelling or the bravado. Um, and it it better underscores their culture than everyone doing the same thing with the growl mm -hmm. and in, in speaking um, highly. And we'll get to how that can work because it's a choice, not a sort of a homogenous view of a culture. But later in the trial scene, we'll see like it's it's ritualistic. Uh, but I loved it there because it was like, it was very powerful in a subtle way, like in a soft spoken way. And it was like, ooh, you can be very dangerous with very little effort. And it's it's a little scarier. I always tell my my students when I'm directing them that when you have power, you have economy of motion because mm. you don't have to spend it. Right. Like right. they will come to you. They will move around you. They you know, like and there's this instinct urge when you're playing the bad person to get up in the face and to puff yourself up. But there's something so. Uh, sinister about stillness sometimes when the person wielding power has confidence in that power and, mm -hmm. and in their ability to instill that power on others 
yeah, that stillness is everything, which which they know here too because they hired great Shakespearean actors who can be still and seem like they're about to explode without anything for it. What's great about this scene too is that we go from all of this potential energy, right? Like potential, potential, all of this to finally that Worf throws a fucking chair, right? Yeah. Which is great. And that and that shift of scene is just so lovely. And that's what gets us to the, the revelation, right? Like this scene is so well paced. Agreed. And the throwing of the chair, we see uh, Kern launch himself Ugh. out of chair and we're not sure what he's going to do until he comes to complete stillness right in his face oh it's so good it's wonderful uh filmmaking the camera work everything is fantastic there and then jimmy what does he say i don't know i don't know <laughs> <laughs> that is the oh, response of a klingon you are klingon that is the response i would expect from my older oh, oh. so some background that Kern was currently only a one-year-old when everybody left him on the Klingon homeworld and went to- Kittimer. Kittimer, where the massacre took place. We are finding out that the Klingon Empire- That they found out. Romulans? Yes, the Romulans were let in to this attack and massacred uh, the 4,000 Klingons that were there because of a traitor. And they put that finger of who was the traitor on Moog. Worf, right. son of Moog, and they assumed nobody was going to do anything about it. But then Kern is the one who's doing it about it. And then everything on this, this episode shifts. Like it shifts from it being a very personal story between Worf and this Klingon <laughs> and who, you know, who is this Klingon to, oh, we got to do everything differently. And we're going to Washington with Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's very much it. And, and it is, it's super quick that Worf just like assumes, oh, that, yeah, you're my brother. Like, I'm your brother. And the next scene they're talking about what to happen. I mean, it's immediate. Like, there's no doubt or maybe you're lying. Is there arterial motives? Like, sure, that tracks. You're my brother. Maybe maybe a tricorder can do it like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? DNA yep, tests yep. are very simple these days. O'Brien would have caught it in the in the transporter. Oh, yeah. You got some Moog in you. We got a Moog here. <laughs> so they didn't tell Kern that he was a uh, son of Moog until he reached the age of ascension. So he hasn't known for all that long, we assume. Because he's a younger brother. He's a baby brother. It's right. been he's, he's, 20 years since Kittimer. So you want to assume he's, he's 21, 21 years, years old. old. Long enough to become a commander in the Klingon armed forces. Plus, he's been moving at light speed or greater for a long time in that. So maybe he's only like physically 17. Let's not pull that technological string. <laughs> My brain. <laughs> so... We go to a meeting with Picard in his ready room, and, and it all seems normal to Picard. Going to the Klingon homeworld without contacting the Federation at all, which does seem a little bit odd that they would be like, okay, very tenuous allies, let's go uh, fuck that shit up right now. But But is it? I mean, it is, but is it? I mean, Picard has unilaterally <laughs> made decisions that Before, the right. universe many yeah. times in the three seasons we've been with him. For much less than the life of one of his officers. He's, he'll throw everything away for one of them, you betcha. Which is great. <laughs> we want that. Uh, so Worf is going to get executed if he is found incorrect. Stakes are high. The Klingons don't fuck around. They do not. <laughs> everything they do not. is at a 10. 
Yeah. <laughs> At least they're they're more honest about it than the Frisbee playing aliens who kill everybody for everything too. <laughs> they, they at least wear it on their shirt. Right? Frisbee aliens. <laughs> Is that the Aryan Aryan Nation planet? Yes. Yes, that, yes, yes where yes, everybody yes. plays Frisbee. Oh. So we're going to the first city of the Klingon Empire, heading to BC, as Greg puts it. <laughs> uh, and we get a nice family smile. Oh yeah. I love the way that Picard tells him, I will not give you time off. But I'm going with you, so yes, you can have time off. Like it's this total like he, he tries. Is game show energy, <laughs> right? I like that this episode is about Picard and Worf's relationship. You don't see too much. It was about, you know previously it was all about Riker and Worf and how they had a kinship, and then here this is that little bit more of that Picard as surrogate father for for Worf and that building over the course of it. And it seems like a continuation of the Romulan defector story where they had their they, they came to loggerheads about like you know you should be able to give the, your blood to this traitor and he's like no and I feel like this is like okay Picard's respect for Worf has just increased and he's like enough so that he would go to bat with the one the stakes were this high I just like that yeah I like that too I think this is a clear step forward in the relationship between Worf and Picard like we've seen with some of the other uh, characters already yeah uh, so it, it is a really nice episode in, in that and we'll see more of it as the episode goes on so we're back to the brothers in 10 forward right he's asked him to be what chadich yes that one i know his second right for this for this uh uh dual slash trial whatever we find out it is uh he he says sure but he wants it to do it as his brother as a son of moog and Worf says absolutely not there's a nice little moment of power switch where we finally, where we see Worf say, fuck you, I'm your older brother. And him absolutely get this big old smile and kind of come down and step yeah. in a little bit and say, oh, definitely, man. It's great. He's been looking for this older brother. It, it, and it hit me. I was like, oh, that is nice. And it was right on the heels of that, um, the Picard Worf moment. I forget what Picard says to end the scene. But whatever it was, it like I was like, oh, wow, that's a, that's a beautiful moment of admiration. Uh, and then with that next moment, it was like real small moments that show a, a a nice connection between two beings. And that was it. Like just when he's down, it's almost like his chin's on the table. He's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was lovely. There are so many things in this episode that are this perfect combination of director, actor, and script. Like everybody understands what this scene is supposed to be. And, and just does it so well. And this is one of those examples, I agree. So we get a matte painting, right? We get a beautiful matte painting. I think it's great. It's a shame it's only the, the one that's used throughout the entire episode, but it, it is so wonderful at showing the Klingon homeworld, right? Like we had never seen it before, as we had said, and it, it looks the way the interiors of their birds of prey look, you know, with those like, uh, cathedral-like buildings with the spikes on them. Like, it just feels extremely Klingon. And I, you can really see why it won an Emmy uh, here was because it's very economy of, of use, right? Like, again, it's the single matte painting that they use throughout to kind of set the stage of what's going to be happening here. But it's enough to kind of complete the illusion with the small amount of sets that they show uh, that this is an alien world. I agree. It looked beautiful. But the one thing that hit me immediately when we went from the mat inside, the great hall did not feel great. It mm. looked great, but it did not have an airiness. I mean, it felt very cramped. Like they had a, a, a lot at a small amount of stage to shoot it in. Cause it, 
it felt like a room in a larger place. Like it was the courtroom off to the side. <laughs> like, like they didn't quite have enough map painting budget to do another one for indoors. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like yeah. uh, in Harry Potter where they like find out the, the trial has been switched to another room and the time has changed. Right. It was like, oh, yeah, we're not in the Great Hall, actually. You're in uh, 4B. <laughs> I think it was the biggest set they had, though, because it was uh, repurposed from the a matter of perspective set that was the uh, where, oh. where the scientist. Oh, oh, yeah, the the big lab, the big lab, yeah, with uh, Salamanca. Yeah, <laughs> I think the '80s were. I mean, for me, they're clearly the decade of the matte painting in, mm -hmm. in genre movies. I mean, you have uh, right. right off with Blade Runner going through like Labyrinth and Dick Tracy and this, and uh, you know, so many sci-fi things with Schwarzenegger. Uh, what I love about this one uh, is you see kind of movement through the matte painting, just like Blade Runner or Labyrinth or Dick Tracy, which makes it so much more three-dimensional than, than some of the other ones seem to be. But yeah, just absolutely dig it. And so we find ourselves right from there. We meet the rest of the Klingons of the episode by and large. It's tribunal night. <laughs> to, to, me, it, <laughs> to me it looked just like the cylons tribunal from battlestar galactica mm. it was everybody was in shadow except the one guy in the middle who you could kind of see and he stayed mysterious and far away for that first scene we get the classic klingon vocal fry from the head of the tribunal kumpak Portrayed by the second guest star of the episode, Charles Cooper, Broadway guy, hell of a career, unsurprisingly started in Western TV shows like The Rifleman. He was a Klingon general in Star Trek V this same year, so isn't that absolutely uh, convenient both for him and the costumes? Raspberry Award winner. <laughs> Raspberry Award winner. Uh, <laughs> show a little respect, Grattan. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> films I love, like The Wrong Man by Hitchcock and Blind Fury with Rutger Hauer, if you know oh. Oh, so good. organization of the Zatoichi Blind Swordsman uh, right. series. Uh, hard on the heels, we meet Patrick Massett as Brass, the prosecutor. He's terrific in this, uh, and this is more or less the only big acting role he ever had on TV or film because wow. he's right to writing and producing Friday Night Lights, uh, being nominated for many Emmys there. Uh, and then uh, writing Lara Croft Tomb Raider, the first movie. Then he was a co-executive producer for uh, Battlestar Galactica uh, Caprica. So like he's oh. had a career, but not in front of the camera. Mm -hmm. And I, he was terrific. Yeah, I, I do have to mention, and this goes to Jimmy's point. We get the Worf issues his challenge and then there's lots of rah, 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 rah. And then they get really upset that Picard is there, right? Yeah. And then Picard proceeds to project so well in that tiny little room that it was just killing me. He's going full, <laughs> yep. you know, um, uh, my kingdom for a horse or yeah. like he's just yes. full on Shakespeare projecting. Shakespeare in the park. <laughs> right? In this tiny little room and I loved it yeah. so much. Well, he, he thinks that the people who have read Shakespeare in the native Klingon will really <laughs> Shakespeare style performance in this moment. He's like, I know this crowd. I know what's yeah. gonna play. I'm gonna go full uh, yelly. 
<laughs> like, lose the dogs of war. <laughs> yeah. And it works. I just love that Riker's there for some reason. He's like, come on, please. Can I come? I really love this culture. It's really. I've been I, I there. <laughs> you, hey, you guys remember me? I was, I was honorary. <laughs> Where's my drinking buddies at? Well, this scene is what I was talking about earlier, where a, a lot of times I don't like the homogeny that they, especially give the Klingons, where they're all kind of clones of the the, the other badass that came before them. Here, it's very purposeful. So uh, both in the acting and I think the direction, because they have Worf stand up and his head is tilted back and he's perfect. It's, it's literally his head is going backwards and it gives the impression of he is choosing to be dramatic because this is a huge moment and it is a presentation. It's a a performance of this is for my life and I'm taking on some drama to let you know I'm willing to die for what I'm about to say. And it's, uh, it's very spot on and it's, it's, it's not, it's real, but it's like, it's artifice on purpose. Like there's a, an intention to it. Uh, And I thought it was really well a shot directed and and performed i'm sure they all also knew that since it's an empire-wide uh political story that this is clearly being recorded and and at some point will be broadcast in either edited in a way to make war look bad or not edited at all so either way he needs to make it hard for them to do that is there like a klingon (laughs) (laughs) c-span can you imagine those report several have died (laughs) That is all. <laughs> but that's why I love the contrast, though, because it is such uh, like about honor and everything that we've like known about Klingons. And then the next scene is the chancellor guy trying to be like, you know, Worf, you should just withdraw. You know, it's not here, right. Dude. It's not. You're doing the wrong thing. And I'm like, what? What right. is going on? Because this does not feel like anything I know about Klingons from all of the Star Trek properties I've seen before. And it's great because it puts us yep. as, yeah. as the audience on the foot of like, what, there's there's something weird here when we all feel it. The moment he says, the moment he says you can leave without shame is like, oh, no, that's not what I know about the Mm-mm. Klingons. Mm-mm. Like, mm-hmm. this is once initiated, this should be a, right. this should be a thing. Yeah. Like, And we should mention that even right before that, at, at the end of the scene before, he got called a traitor. And slapped. By, by the prosecutor, backhanded across the face and stripped of the only Klingon piece of clothing he was wearing. Yeah. So then he comes out and says, oh, but it's okay if you just leave. <laughs> and like, Worf's supposed to just right. buy that. And the funny thing, he's so interesting. By the end of it, he does do this. And it's so, I know. And that's what makes it so powerful too. It's like, it's so and wrong. And we still feel that by the end. Ugh. And we've seen it play out like this hundreds of times in politics and in business and things like that where people spend more time with their families. Like this is what happens often, you mm-hmm. know, make a shitty deal. Random comparison, but the uh, first season of Game of Thrones does this exact thing and then it doesn't matter anyway and yeah. whatever. It's interesting. Yeah. No, it's, I, I think it, it happens a lot in stories because it happens a lot in life. Mm-hmm. You know, why would you ask me to lay aside the honor of my father, Worf says uh, there. And that's that's an interesting response because it plays to confusion as much as anything else and with confusion you're looking for clarity and that's where we're going next why are they doing this which is a a terrific place to go in a storytelling way 
Because of that, we move to the, the happy amateur sleuth hour. Yay. <laughs> Riker and Data moving right into the investigation. Anytime, I'll take the case. <laughs> <laughs> anytime those two just Google shit is my favorite because. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and, and Riker's very smart, like, you know, like in terms of immediately thinking about the medical records, which is a great sort of way to, he sort of says it offhandedly where we're like, oh, interesting, but that's going to become so important later on. It's just a nice, nice catch by him. He's watched Murder, She Wrote. He knows. Right? Yeah. And, and bureaucrats and doctors, they write everything down. Go, go look at what the bureaucrats did. That's so smart. Kern has a red meeting in a long hallway. <laughs> Another ex parte communication. Dear asshole. And let's meet in the middle where there's two entrances. <laughs> Nothing can go wrong. And lots of fog. Let's get the fog going. At this point, they know who he is. You know, you should probably just leave your brother to die alone, which we assume he's just going to take that deal as well. But they play it out well. Like, you know, Kern knows what's coming. And he takes the time to, you know, rhetorically spit in this guy's face and uh, then, you know, start trying to kick his ass. And then the other guys come with their ceremonial knives. <laughs> ceremonial assassin blades. And, uh, you know, he gives a really good account of himself, but ends up getting uh, split up the middle. And I love that this scene and also the trial scene is the first utterance of perhaps today is a good day to die. Signature Wharf yes. line, right? Which we get for the first time in this episode. Uh, and then yes, Kern says the same thing here. Wharf was right. It was a good day to die. It is a good day to die, dear ass, and the day is not over yet. Yeah. That was the earlier one. So and good. Wharf explains to the doctor that they used Jimmy's favorite new ceremonial weapon <laughs> of an assassin. <laughs> <laughs> and Wharf then says the nicest thing ever said, should have let him die. Right. Because <laughs> now we're both just going to get killed anyway. Right. Cult of Eeyore. He is feeling his feelings. And Crusher handles it pretty well. <laughs> She's just stunningly nice to him. Yeah, she says, you sound like you've already lost, which is just yeah. so melancholy and sad because it, yeah. it seems that way. It right. does. Uh, and she just knows he needs to feel it and have her stand there and let him. Yeah, and I think Worf is a little bit trapped there because he's like, you know, oh, cling on death. You should have let him die. You know, he's trying to be the bravado kind of thing here. Right. And then she gives that to him. And he's like, oh, yeah, shit, I can't be defeatist yet. Like, come on, I, as a warrior, I'm supposed to keep fighting. You're right. Fuck. I don't know what to feel. <laughs> right. And, you know, she sure could have said, let him die. What are you talking about? And she didn't. That's what Pulaski would have said. And then they would have smashed nicely. So, <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> <trapped> it. <laughs> so we move back and Riker joined by the third investigator, uh, the lovely Jordy. And we find out that a Romulan ship, it suddenly was found a little while ago, had a log that expressed new theories about the Kittimer massacre, including what? Mission from Worf's father's ID. But Riker says, well, how do you know that that wasn't just fate? Because literally as an investigator, you can say that every time you find something. <laughs> more to your client. Right. So he's a professional at this point. Uh, so... Uh, Jordy and Data do their thing where they line up of the bullet casing and they don't match. Um, Whoa. In this case, it's it's computer data. But it's the exact same wonderful trope. Very sci-fi, very fantastic. And hence? 
and hence <laughs> turn 80 degrees uh shows up that it does not line up jordy Riker have this moment of looking at each other boom we know this is going forward right but we also picard is asked to be surrogate chadish chadish we go right back to the uh, to the ready room and he speaks a little Klingon when he accepts, which is nice. Yeah. He does. And he warns Worf that the whole High Council itself is Worf's actual enemy. Just love the, like, it goes all the way to the top realization here. Yes, give That's me great. all of the conspiracy tropes. Yeah. I, want them. I, I just read that Picard was really just going to give, like, one word in Klingon as, like, a, hey, I've learned this one word. But then the, uh, I think it was, I think it was uh, Patrick Stewart himself who said it would make so much more if he, if he, if he had, was invested, if he had actually finished the entire ceremonial line and it wasn't just like, hey, I learned, you know, amigo in Spanish. I can, I can do the entire <laughs> sentence and then like finish the thing. And then that was touching to, to Worf to, to, yeah. to feel that. And I was like, that's, that was a really strong addition. So we're back at the tribunal and Worf finds his light immediately. <laughs> he is so wonderfully lit. It's fantastic. Um, and some of this gets fucking hardcore here. There's just this great line. They come hard, right? Like, I'm not here to command. And then he says, then you must be ready to fight something the Federation doesn't teach you. And then Picard says, you may test that theory at your convenience, which is just so baller. I can't yeah. even. I can't even. Yeah. And it was so low. Like, it was almost, he was almost whispering that in a, a very, like, you know, not Klingon way like he did earlier, right? Like, he's just like, no, go ahead. See if yeah. you think that's true, motherfucker. He's like, try slapping me. Try slapping me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And right, and right before that, Duras showed his ass when uh, uh, Worf said, I'll do it no matter what and nothing will stop me. Not even a trap set for my uh, Chadich by a coward. And then Duras like jumps up. I'm like, dude, you're gonna get your ass. Oh. No, I just say you just admitted that you went after it. Oh right, right. <laughs> like you didn't yeah. say your name. Sit down, dummy. Um, <laughs> who you calling coward? Bush League. All right, so then Crusher comes in with K Lest. We find out that K Lest is another survivor of the Kittimer massacre. We've got our goal for the next act. Picard gets that information in the in a phone call. Yeah, <laughs> like hold, hold one one second, I gotta take this. Sorry, <laughs> I thought I turned this off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they essentially say like we're gonna troll Klingon Facebook to find her. Like there's some mm -hmm. like big you know database database of all of yeah, the, the central yeah. net or something they called it. Yeah, and then there's that right the war from Picard or like wait we can't we really you're gonna go on your own? He's like I got this. He's like hey. I'm gonna go full Magnum PI here. He says hey I'm your Kadish. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which I was like okay the title doesn't protect you dude. <laughs> you're a small white bald guy on a planet <laughs> full of huge like gnarly forehead beings you're not blending in but i do like that they did establish that he knows more than hello and goodbye i i also bet that again this is such an empire drastic thing that he wears the robe so he doesn't have to show his face but like nobody's gonna come for him so he goes through um hollywood's version of detroit <laughs> uh, which is never actually correct complete with the fucking trash fire amazing choice lots of red lighting which i appreciate yeah he finds the delightful k lest played by our final guest star of the episode thelma lee 
who retired to Mercer Island in the 90s. Oh. That is near where we live. Yeah. She had bit parts in fantastic films like They Live and The King of Comedy. She's a New York native. Few guest stars here and there. And that was that for her film and TV career. But she was Golda in Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway with Zero Mostel. Whoa. And my, wow. And my God, I wish I'd seen that. Uh, Fun City on Broadway, several more. She began as a comedian in a local NYC comedy sketch TV show called Toast of the Town. Really? Married to the fantastic Jack Guilford, who is known for uh, his activism in the 50s and 60s, 40s and 30s. And along with his wife, Thelma Lee's sister, they were both named by Jerome Robbins in front of the HUAC and blacklisted for quite a while. Mm -hmm. uh, so once again, fuck Jerome Robbins. And uh, yay, Thelma Lee as Kay Lest, who now has her meeting with Picard. How's that going, everybody? Well, first of all, her place looks really comfortable. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just saying, not very Klingon. <laughs> Single woman in society. She's a threat to society. Her name is very similar to Kay Lest, which is a very important name in Klingon culture. And so that just kept throwing me off. Fill us in who Kay Lest is. I believe she's... Uh, the empress slash goddess to the to the Klingons. Super interesting. Explored a lot more in Discovery yeah. season one, and and what she means. The, and the prophet of Kaylas is a, is an important figure there, and uh, it's maybe a different offshoot of what you think about what Klingons are, you know, based on timelines and all that stuff. But that's Kelvin timeline, I, <laughs> it, it, right? Well, super interesting though. Like we named kids Jesus and Christian, and you could say that maybe it's just her name is. Is a as an homage to that. That makes a lot more sense. But then she says she's not going to help him. She's like, "Yeah, I have all the information you need, uh, but I don't give a fuck. I'm dead." She says, "I am dead a long time, right?" And I wonder, with her comfort level, right? Was there a bit? And she came back to the planet. Was there a bit of like, "We'll put you here, but you no Shut longer up. exist." She, she signed an NDA, right? With the Doris family, is that what you're saying? Yeah, like yeah. like that they sort of stealed her away, yeah. you know. Why else would she be alive? She Either was... that or she was in hiding, right? Like she's yeah. been in hiding this whole time, which would be another reason not to want to come out. Picard having a wonderful slash awful fight choreography. Where he fl flat out murders one of the guys yeah. with his ceremonial knife. Yeah, stabs in and then twists. And then twists. Pushes him off. Like that guy's intestines, if they have them, are coming right out. Yeah. Eviscerated. But then the old lady stabs the other one in the back, <laughs> which is awesome. For me, it's even better because it looks to me like she throws it. She yes. throws yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> That's fucking awesome. That's a great choice. Yeah. All that gear they wear makes it look like it wouldn't be able to go through. But obviously, it's just for show. It's cotton like everybody else. But only for ceremonial assassin knives. <laughs> go oh, that. that's right. Well... Did she have a, does everybody have a ceremonial assassin knife? Hey. Look, everyone gets one, but you only get one. <laughs> the nanny of a great house like the Moogs is going to be an assassin. But isn't yeah. that a red flag? As soon as you buy it, it's like, uh, all right, here it is. And you're under arrest <laughs> because yeah. you're obviously going to do something. Hey, they have their own smelting plant and you know it. Come on. You're being disingenuous now. <laughs> 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 the assassins. Assassin, now, yes, it's, right. Assassination is very profitable. We're about to get into the shamey part, right? Yes, because, we are. Because she flat out, you know, she's like, he says, like, would they know you anymore? Like, if bringing you, would that just cause a stir? And she says that the the dude uh, would know her. Uh, I got his eye back then. 
he was too fat. And now I'm not on her side yeah, anymore. Now, I hate now it. I'm like, you know what? Fuck you. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But isn't it okay if it's about a Klingon? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. Okay. No, she needs come up and Jimmy, and we know she's not gonna get it. I mean maybe I'm wrong. Patrick Stewart has many talents. He's a wonderful actor. Not a good stunt performer like i thought he looked really not like for all of his bravado of like you may test that at my convenience he did not do very well in this fight right i have both acting as well as fighting the the close-up stuff i liked okay um but yeah Yeah. he seems a little stiff uh i don't know i haven't seen him do much fighting in his career i remember excalibur it's mostly uh, which i think was a fantastic choice uh the the fight style is mostly encumbered and protected by armor it's not like in, mm-hmm. implied there's much skill there i i think there is but i think it's like offensive yeah. linemen in football like you can't see mm-hmm. it in the moment you got to just know what the skill is to be able to kind of spot it uh so i think them just rushing at each other and knocking each other down is great as a as a you know realistic fight technique back then but i agree in this he's he seems stiff like he's already you know tired or is some, some sort of character choice that doesn't work or he's just a little stiff yeah Yeah. it's hard to fight in a cape it is (laughs) there are whole fighting styles built around the cape though too (laughs) no capes but not for this fight director yes people and now we're going back to the to the trial well just they immediately go to the klingon ready room right (laughs) like immediately it's sort of like oh shit we got to take this private Klingon ready room too. That's so funny. And I love, I love the gambit here too. Cause right before they come, he says, you know, like, do you know who, who's at fault? And she's like, honestly, no. <laughs> and the gambit is, it doesn't matter. They don't know what you know. Right. Um, so to watch them squirm with our knowledge that, that she doesn't actually know anything. It's just a nice little dance to put them through. Um, and a great tactic. Agreed. And it would have been really fine and I wouldn't have minded if they hadn't done it. But you're right. This make, That little detail makes it so much more interesting to watch. And then Picard puts it together, though, finally, that like it is Juris who is at fault. Oh. Uh, yeah. And his father. Clearly. And I'll put right. it together back when he said, my father was also on Kitama. Exactly. Yeah. I was like, oh. Here we go. But it was nice. Telegraphic. Like they didn't, they didn't bring it up several times. They're just like, I'll mention this one in the middle of all of his other screaming. They test that theory of like, would you like her to give this testimony in open court? Which obviously they don't. So they dismiss her. And what does the bitch do on the way out the door? <laughs> You're still what fat. What does the bitch do on the way out of the door? In case you we forgot. are still fat. Just yeah. in case we forgot. And that poor guy's face like, oh. Oh. I got hurt again. Yeah. But I love that it turns out that Klingon politics are just as fucking dirty and led by m- money. Yep. Because... And power, right? Because it turns out that this guy's family is just, they're too wealthy. They're too powerful. They're too important that something has to be sacrificed. And honestly, Picard kind of goes on the line. He's like, fuck it. Dissolve the alliance. I'll do this right. for Worf. Let's do it. Bring it. Right. And Worf's like, nah. Uh, nah. Even still kind of comes back and he says, no, take my brother and go home. And then he sells himself. The general has a great response to and it's an acting choice because he's just given the line you don't understand and he doesn't do the typical Klingon growl or yell 
it's a desperate, quiet plea of you don't understand what this will do to our empire. It's it's a it's begging without begging, and it's really it's nice a nice acting moment, but it's nice because we're finally after years really getting to see Klingons in 3D, like the way we've seen with War finally, but now outside of him, they're not all the exact same warrior clone. There's uh, there is a myriad. Uh, faces to the Klingon world. And it's just really refreshing in these moments. Agreed. I, I think the the acting in particular up and down with the Klingons in this episode changes so much about what we will expect from them moving forward throughout the entire uh, rest of the series and the universe. Go ahead. Uh, I love that the whole you wouldn't understand uh, what, what you just said, Jimmy, is then followed by Worf clearly understanding. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. And that that's what leads them to say your heart is Klingon. Right. Because he knows that it is that everything would fall to pieces and he will not be responsible for that. And that he brings to the table the idea of disaccommodation is just I don't know. I just it's such a true honor. It's he's the most Klingon out of all of them. Like it's just so it's such a great character leap. He has honor enough to know that honor is bullshit. And and yeah, all true Klingons you know, we would like to say have that honor, you know. The only thing I don't understand about this situation, though, is that Doris's father is dead. Who who are the people that would go to bat for this civil war that they're alluding to? We don't right. know. They get into later, which I think is important. But by the end, of, I mean, by the end of this episode, I'm like, why did he make this choice? Like, I still don't really get it. And because I'm not Klingon, because I don't have that history that you're talking about that that they all assume leads to the civil war being inevitable. I think they're implying that, and we assume he's the head of it now that his dad is dead. So like, he's going to start a civil war. I guess what bothers me is that he's not the one saying that in this scene. No, he doesn't have to. It, it seems like the power dynamic is this general person who is making the calls. And I wish that there was at least mm. some kind of hint, either acting wise or anything, that he's taking cues from this guy. I got you. That's and the way, point, it's, the way it's yeah. shown is that is that Duras is the henchman here. And I wish there was at least something that could have just been like, he's, he's no, I'm just a puppet master. This guy's the one who's really in charge. Oh, yeah. I don't even think he is really in charge. I think, uh, Juras, I think I think this guy is. Yeah, but the person who would make that decision is in the room. Yeah, he's, but he is one of the people who would make that decision. Yeah. I just assume that it's one of those legacy families, that it is not just this kid, yeah. that this punk-ass kid the who's the... whole family's the, gone. Yeah, but I, I agree with Greg now that he brings it up. It would have been nice not to change the story at all, but just to have seen, oh, yeah, this guy really does... Mm. have influence and is it to to really bring home if this guy goes down our empire goes down in the way he seems so ineffectual in the way he was presented to us that is like how could this guy impact anything like it doesn't seem like anybody cares about him i think fail sons are what run the world it, it, i don't think that really plays into what greg's saying though like just because failed sons really aren't that great they're still they still have influence and they're still, uh, you can still see how they have influence. And they didn't show that here, like how he specifically had it. It almost would have been more powerful if he just wasn't in the room. Like, if, right. If, 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 yeah, I, I could get behind. If, if it was, if it was the right. general who was saying like, Hey, look, I'm in a fucked up position because yes, of this. That's a good, yeah. Agreed. I'm going to get us past this okay. <laughs> to, to no to the next moment, no. which is why he's in the room and why it works for me, which is, 
Worf bitch slapping him and saying you're great. the son of a traitor. Yeah. Right. And I would say even if this guy has all the power in the world outside of that tiny room, everyone in that room knows he's a traitor, Mm -hmm. the son of a traitor. So his position in that Mm. room is bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And that that that's where I I just love that. Like, before I go, one more thing I have to do. Love it. Love it. Yeah. 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 Because we wouldn't have that moment if he was like just the prosecutor and we were talking about this family that we don't see we wouldn't get that slap and the slap is the comeuppance that the episode was was begging uh, i was begging the episode to give me because that was like a that was the case totally right. well and what kate's saying is correct that that gives a reason for everyone to have dismissed him in the room because in the room he has no power it's outside the room that that he has power and yeah. anyone All in that right. room could have slapped him Fine. <laughs> yeah. Turn both of us back around, Kate. That was I smart. Love it, that was very smart. Nice work. And up yeah. next is a, a lovely scene with with Worf, Worf taking moment by moment uh, to be destroyed by his whole society. Before you know, we have this lovely moment with him in Picard mm-hmm. where he says, "Your honor has to be intact. This is not over. We're going to fight another day," which then is echoed in that moment of him saying to his brother, like, you have to do this mm-hmm. too. And I don't remember the exact words that he says to him, but it's so powerful. Yeah, that mm. moment fell a little flat for me just mm. because of my earlier feeling of the room was so small. It didn't <laughs> feel like they earned the right to whisper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was like, just just look at him. It, you know, that moment of you have to do this. Because mm-hmm. I love the idea of that moment of you have to do this for us and our father, but... It just was like, you can't, you can't talk. Everybody just heard what you said. Yeah. I did go, you know, it just was missing an echo. Mm-hmm. I love you, brother, brother, brother. brother, brother, brother. <laughs> they could have just used Chad each as a, as a honorific there. And that would have worked. I also really like the hesitation and, and difficulty Worf has in saying the words. He has decided to do it and he knows it's the right thing, but he still has to force the words out. And I like that. And then basically they walk out and the sun sets. Done. Yeah. I I love this whole idea of being shunned too. Like I love with Klingons that, uh, that death is the biggest honor, you know, like an honor, honorable death, that this is just the opposite of that. Right. Which is like a lifetime of not being recognized at all for honor. It's just chilling. And I love that we end it like that. Just sort of like, it's kind of a bummer. <laughs> I, I had read Den of Geeks and they loved the episode too, but th- there was their criticism at the end. They felt like the ending was more of the end of a part two series, you know, it was like to be continued. And I disagree. I love that it was no, it was no pomp and circumstance to it. It was the horrible giving up of your honor and your family name being smeared which is a lie and just walking away yeah. and that's yeah. it. Yeah. And the, almost the, the, the finality of it. Um, and then sort of the prescience of us knowing it isn't the finale of it. And, and it's sort of the brilliance of episodes can have legacy qualities to them. They don't have, you don't have to always have season long story arcs. You can have something that happens once and then it's more amazing when it, you get a tie in. Like, I love the fact that Kern was, a first officer because it plays off of what we saw and it gives continuity to the universe without there being a story right. arc that has to go over a whole series mm-hmm. or a season. So and it was nice. I love the button. Ronald D. Moore said that this was the 
kind of first time that them as a writing staff latched onto the idea that they could do exactly what you're talking about, Jimmy, that it, even though it is an episodic uh, series that you have to have a beginning, a middle and end after 45 minutes, but they could recontinue this and have it be chapters and have it be something that they go back to again and again. They've toyed with it before. They've had mentions before, but this was the first time that they're like, everyone who is working on this episode knew that this story wasn't over when it was over. They knew they were going to get back to it in subsequent seasons or that they wanted to. Even us as the audience member, I think we were all kind of like, eh, this doesn't feel like an end, but it feels like an end. Right. To me, it feels like the ending of a tragedy. It, it's it's an ending that makes this is the, the audience sit in the emotion that they feel at the end. It's the point of the episode is to, to leave you feeling like this and to wonder how it might apply to your own life. I, I absolutely love the ending here. And if they had never gone back to it, I'd still feel wonderful about it. So uh, we love the episode. We're in agreement there. But how much and in what metric? Grant, tell me your final thoughts on this episode. I am going to give this one nine and a half caviar smears on mm -hmm. turkey legs. It's fantastic. It hits all of the buttons for what makes sci-fi great, what makes uh, human entertainment great. It is funny, it is tragic, it has got some fights, we got some deaths, we got some uh, uh, dramatic turns and reveals and wonderful performances all around. It's, it's uh, continuing our string of amazing episodes in season three that just kind of cement the love of this series for me. Fantastic, nine and a half. What about you, Jimmy? I'm gonna give it 9.3 ceremonial assassin blades. <laughs> <laughs> For all the reasons that Greg brought up, I love that we get a peek into the world of the Klingons because they're so important to the world of Star Trek and to uh, give them more stage, more breath to the uh, in the universe is just fantastic. And they do it in a in a very dramatic way that's important to one of our beloved characters, which ups everything. Wonderful performances. And uh, like Greg said, I mean, these last maybe four or five episodes, this is the reason TNG was elevated to one of the best sci-fi series for sci-fi fans. Like there's so many out there that we've come across. And I'm like, Ugh, I, I don't know why I liked it. This stretch is why. Like these are absolutely great episodes. And if you watch these and you don't like it, you never will. <laughs> <laughs> it's, this is the test. It's a litmus test of do you like science fiction and specifically Star Trek? I love it. All right, we're, we're still treading above nine. What do you think, Kate? I'm going to give it nine and a half cool fork and knife combos. <laughs> <laughs> All we need now is the spoon for a, my collection and I will be complete. I just think that this whole episode is elevated. It is elevated acting. It is elevated uh, script writing. It is storytelling visually, you know, minus the tiny uh, great hall. But there is just, there's this urgent through line of this that is told in a unique way, right? Like the stakes are literally life and death, but we go at it with so many different tactics and so many different, uh, I, I like that there's some mystery in there and we've got to solve things. I like that there's, you know, obviously some sci-fi in there and the ritual. And we learn more about the Klingons. We learn more about Worf. We learn more about Picard as he you know, interacts with Worf. And I just, I love this episode. So yeah, that's what I give it. I think that's fantastic as well. I have loved all three of your ratings. I think it's neat that we all liked it so much that we have turned 9.0 to 10. 
into our own small little today. <laughs> and so I'll continue in that vein and give it a price is right level 9.6, <laughs> just in case the real answer is somewhere above. <laughs> I think it was fantastic all the way through. We have discussed why at length. Um, I have had a ball here. We went way over time. I just cannot love you enough, even though I have wet my pants. We will see you all next week for whatever the episode is. <laughs> I didn't write it down. Uh, and I believe we have a host in Jimmy G next week, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. right. I'm stepping up. So as mentioned before, my pants are wet. I'm sure I will be joined by my co-hosts very soon. And this is Re-Engage. I'm peeing right now. Excellent. We appreciate you for voyaging with us on this episode of Re-Engage. Next week, we are continuing on our mission with the next episode of the third season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Follow Re-Engage on Instagram and Twitter at ReEngageTNG to get updates when episodes are published. You can follow our various cultural bridge crew on all of the social medias. Kate Yeager is Yeagerlicious. Eric Gratton is at Eric Falls Down. Greg Tito is at Greg Tito on Twitter and at Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Jimmy G is at the Jimmy G on Instagram. Reengage is edited by me, Greg Tito. Logo artwork by Mojo Jojo97. Theme music is by Ryan Marth. Thank you so much for listening. Stand by now as Dr. Beverly Crusher is ready 